if Jonah didn't actually go throughout the city preaching his message, if he didn't go to all of the boroughs of Nineveh and tell them judgment's coming, how did the people know so quickly? The people who heard the message didn't keep it to themselves. That day, they shared it with other people. They heard the message. They believed it was a serious message. They believed that it was the truth. And so they are telling everybody. And we know this. There, there's even an expression, isn't, isn't there? Bad news travels fast, doesn't it? As quickly as it can, people know. And so it spreads. Everybody's hearing the message and everybody's having the same reaction. They're falling down. They're saying, we need to fast. We need to turn. And so they got the word to everyone around them. It was what needed to happen. The word spread immediately. And then, as I said, the Ninevites responded as one body in repentance. Now, what they experienced, it's been noted, the reaction was conveyed by three verbs. The very first verb that shows what happens, we are told they believed. Now that verb used in this text is the same verb that is used in Genesis 15.6 that says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So this is a word that means honest to goodness belief. Not I think, maybe, no, they believed. Now what did they believe? If you notice the text did not say they believed in God. It says, the, te- the text says they believed God. In other words, this foreign prophet comes along and says, essentially, the supreme God is going to judge you. And they knew it. And they believed that. Nowhere in the text does Jonah actually mention the covenant name of God. The the name that Israel knew, Yahweh. I am that I am. But they do believe that there is a God that is obviously more powerful than their false gods who has proclaimed judgment. And there's no indication that they had this mass conversion to believe in Yahweh alone. But what we do know is that they accepted the message is true. In fact, if you were to fast forward 150 years, the prophet Nahum would would again prophesy against Nineveh, this time from the comforts of back home with the God's people. And God did destroy Nineveh. Because the people of Nineveh had gone back to their old way of life. Their old violence, their anger, their hatred. But before we dismiss this completely, there is an interesting passage found in the book of Luke where Jesus talks about the men of Nineveh. It's found in Luke 11.32. And it's a harsh indictment against the people who have heard his message and who are rejecting it. Because Jesus said, 
The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So that verse suggests that at least for some of the people in Nineveh, it wasn't just about, I'm afraid we're going to be judged. For some of them, it was a repentance that actually turned them to God. And even though the Ninevite revival was brief, Dr. Billy K. Smith points out, was there ever a lasting and continuous conversion in the history of Israel? Folks, think about Israel. We see it in the Exodus. Yay, God has delivered us. Horse and riders on in the sea. Why don't we have any water? Why don't we have any food? Why did you lead us out here to die, Moses? We see it among the prophets who come and say, repent. And the people of God at times turn to God. Only what to do what later? Fall back into sin. We see it in the book of Judges. Sin, repent, get saved. Sin, repent, get saved. Sin, repent, get saved. And when Dr. Smith brought that up, I thought about the awakenings in our nation. We had the first great awakening that lasted a few years and and changed the hearts and many people came to Jesus Christ. And then things went bad again and then we had the second great awakening that lasted a few years. And many people turned to Christ and had faith. And then it weakened. And then we had the great revival movements of the 19th century. And hundreds and thousands of people got saved and turned around. And then the 20th century hit. And we did not have an awakening. Now is that saying that what happened during the first, second awakenings, during the Revivals of the 1800s. Were those false? No. We know that there were people who were changed. Whole states had their entire character changed. But the human race seems to do this repentance, faith, and fall down again. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Because this is the kind of question you'd really need to answer honestly, and I'm not sure we all would. But folks, has this not been our own story? Have we not committed to God and then fallen back? To recommit to God, then fall back? I believe that there was repentance. And I pray that there were a lot of people who came To actually have faith in God. I can't prove it by the text. But there's a a hundred and fifty years between Jonah and Nahum. And for a long period of time, the records of the Ninevites were kind of quiet about what was going on. Until finally they just burst through in all of their hatred and anger. So they believed. And then they declared. A descriptive verb that says, this is what we have to do. We have to fast. And it says, from the greatest to the least, 
Now, folks, what does that mean? From the most important to the most insignificant person in our society. And what does that mean? Everyone needs to fast. We all need to fall down. We all need to fast. Now, fasting was a sign of of contrition, of, of mourning, of desperation in many cultures in the ancient Near East. In many cultures around the world, it is still practiced. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Ninevites, when they hear this, their first initial reaction is, we need to fast. We need to change our hearts. And then we're told they put on. And as a further sign of their contrition, they put on sackcloth. It was a coarse cloth made most often from camel's hair. Uh, It was a customary dress of the poor. Poor couldn't afford anything better. And it was a customary dress of those who were in mourning. Uh, The prophets of old often dressed in sackcloth, identifying with the poor and those who needed repenting. John the Baptist is described wandering the the wilderness in camel's hair and eating locusts. Uh, Locusts and honey. And folks, locusts are not those little things that are cicadas and make all the noise. In the Bible, locusts are grasshoppers. Shorthorned grasshoppers. Dr. T. Kirk points out, great emergencies demand and justify the use of extraordinary methods. The peril was too awful and near for a moment's delay. So the Ninevites are intent. As a people, we don't have any record in this text that there's anybody saying, now wait a minute, you're, you're acting a little harsh. Let's give it some time. He said we have 40 days after all. Let, let's see what happens. No, they're doing it. Now, maybe it's a superstition. Maybe they're thinking this will win him over. But the text says they repented. Verse 10 makes it very clear. They repented. So we've looked at the people. Now let's take a look at a response of a leader. And he's called king here. And I'll go ahead and use the term king throughout the rest of the the way. But the word king could mean something like governor. Uh, He is not mentioned by name. Uh, There were several kings who, who... Nineveh was not their main throne room. But Nineveh was a place that they had if you would, places of retreat. Uh, When we look at this man, this king, the word got to him, and it took a while because he's in the palace and he's kind of sheltered. When word got to the king, he responded quite surprisingly. He does not do what you might expect a foreign king to do under these circumstances. He immediately took off his royal robes, which would have been beautiful, and he put sackcloth on himself. He kneels down in the ashes. He repented. The king did. And this is a sign of deep humiliation. He is the highest official in the city of Nineveh, perhaps in all of Assyria. And he is now abased himself down to the lowliest person in the kingdom. 
just like them all, he is fasting. Now, think about this. He is a pagan ruler of a pagan nation known for their violence. What would you expect him to do to a prophet who comes up and says, 40 days and you're going to be destroyed? Well, let me give you a clue. In Jeremiah 26.8, it's been pointed out, Jeremiah preached about a century later than, than Jonah, not to Nineveh, but to Judah. Do you remember what Jeremiah's word to Judah was? Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Jeremiah was the man, the people of Judah knew him to be a prophet. He was one of their own. He wasn't a foreigner who came in. He belonged to them. And in Jeremiah 26, 8, what did the people of Judah do with their own prophet? They threw him in prison. What would we expect for a pagan ruler to do with a foreign prophet we've never seen before, we've never heard before, we don't know anything about you? Throw him in jail. Cut his head off. Destroy him. So when you think about this, we have a sense. Something in the demeanor of Jonah the Spirit of God speaking through Jonah, a king who should have, by the way kings thought, have thrown Jonah in prison, completely humbles himself. He repents. And then, this foreign king issued a decree that involved two major parts. Now, I want to emphasize this is a decree. What does that mean? The people had said, we need to fast. The king now sends out a a proclamation. It is now the official government policy of Nineveh. Which means, if there are any of you out there who don't do this, there will be a harsh penalty. And the first part of the declaration was, everything needs to fast. And this is where it gets odd. Because he says, humans and animals, don't even feed your livestock. And don't feed yourselves. Now we understand people, the idea a person can repent. What did the cow do wrong? What did the goat do wrong? Nevertheless, livestock and humans are not to eat or drink anything. And then, he says, on humans and animals alike, it gets even weirder, put sackcloth. I'm not real sure that a cow whose hide is pretty bristly anyway is going to notice the sackcloth that much. But everything... Now, what is this? Again, is this superstition? I don't think so. I think it's a sign of desperation. This king is so desperate. 
He wants to avert, avert destruction for himself and his people. Again, because he knows we're guilty. A bas relief is a, a semi three dimensional statuary uh, usually found on walls. And in the ancient world, they often told stories about the great heroes of a nation, the great heroes that, that did great things. All around Nineveh, all around Assyria, the, the bas reliefs showed the extreme violence of the Assyrians that they perpetrated on their enemies. I'm not going to go into great detail, folks, but these were a brutal people. They used some of the harshest things, even farm weaponry, to, to humiliate and destroy their enemies. They knew they were a violent people. The king knew they were a violent people. And they all knew we deserve the judgment of God. So his first part, fasting, sackcloth. And then the second part, and this was the key. This was the key. It's not just about fasting, which they may have done superstitiously. It's not about sackcloth and ashes. The king said, and it's literally in single, it's not multiple people, let each one turn from his or her evil ways. So it's not just let us turn for our evil ways. Each one of us need to turn. Each one of us needs to recognize our sin. Each one of us needs to embrace it, the truth of it. Each one of us must make a decision. You see, this king is not interested in words or just a ritual. He is saying we need to act on it. We need to make a decisive moment in time when we say no more. We are not going to be these people anymore. Turn from your hatred. Turn from your violence. Turn from your wickedness. This was his call. And then he gave the reason why. He publicly said God's compassion would be their only hope. Do you remember when we started this journey together? And the storm at sea comes and, and the, the sailors are praying and they're, they're, they're seeking their gods and the captain finds Jonah asleep at the bottom of the ship in Jonah 1.6, the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take note of us uh, and we will not perish. Maybe he will change his heart. Maybe he will save us. In verse 3.9, the king says, Who knows? Maybe God will relent. Maybe he'll decide not to judge us. These two ideas are equal in meaning. Both men are expressing essentially the same thing. That only the God of Jonah might spare them. Maybe your God, Jonah, will be the one who stops this storm. Maybe Jonah's God 
will be the one who forgives us. So you see, the king and the captain understood the gods of the pagans weren't helping. Only God that Jonah served could help. And for the king very particularly, he knew that whatever happens next, it is, a hand, it is in the hands of God. Either judgment will come and we will be overthrown or maybe just maybe, will be forgiven. So let's look at the last response of the narrative itself. The response of a holy God. There's quite a difference in Joe Moore's painting of the people of Nineveh at this point. Before they are crying out to God, they are doomed, they know they are, but now their cry out to God is thankfulness and joy because They have been forgiven. The response of a holy God. First of all, let's let's pay attention that God observed all that was going on in the hearts of the Ninevites. He saw that these wicked people had turned from their evil ways. He knows the very concept of biblical repentance is found in that action. Repentance means to turn. In, in Hebrew, it's shuv. It means to turn. And the idea is it turns away from the evil that you're doing. These are the things that should not be in your life. And you finally have come to understand that and say, I don't want this anymore. So you turn from the evil ways and you start turning to the God who can change your path. And about faith. A complete reorientation of life. Turning from your sin, turning to the path that was laid out by God. Now we don't know to what degree the whole people surrendered to God in belief, as I've already stated. But they did turn away from their evil. They did call upon God's mercy. Folks, understand this. No matter what happened in future Nineveh, At that moment in time, those people truly repented. They really repented. It wasn't a game. It wasn't a show. And the depth of that repentance was enough. Enough for what? Enough for God to relent from the threat of judgment. I told you last week there may have been a hint when Jonah was told first preach against Nineveh and then to preach to Nineveh. God may have been pointing out to his prophet what I'm really asking you to do is give them a warning. Threaten them with what will happen if they continue in their path. So now God sees they truly have turned. They have changed their heart. And so what does he do? He did respond with a heart of compassion. The phrase translated had compassion in the New International Version is translated relented in the English Standard Version and some other modern versions. It suggests a change of mind. 
It means to be moved to pity for someone. Sometimes it is translated repent, that God repented. Uh, Billy K. Smith, Dr. Smith points out that the phrase uh, that the Ninevites turned and the phrase that God had compassion, God relented, are synonyms. Both of them carry the idea of a turning. And Dr. Smith translated the Ninevites turning from evil like God turning from judgment. The destruction that he warned about. And it was that last phrase of the king's declaration that made the difference. Each one of us must turn from our evil ways. Now there are people who don't like the idea, they don't like the phrases, God repented, God changed his mind, God relented. There's a whole school in theology called the immutability of God that means God doesn't change in any shape, form, or fashion. And we know that God does not change in his essential nature. James said there is no shadow of turning in God. But over and over again, if you are a student of the Word of God, you know something. You know of a lot of different examples where God announced what He was going to do, He waited for a response, and then acted appropriately. Moses is on Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and what are the people of Israel doing? At the foot of the mountain, worshiping a golden calf. And Aaron's excuse was, oh, I threw the gold in the fire and it came out the golden calf. But Aaron also said, this is the God who led you out of Egypt. Isn't it ironic that one of the first of the great commandments of God is, you will not make a barren, you will not do a graven image. Not of anything, not even of me. And God says, I'm going to kill them all. And I'll start over with you. And Moses prayed. Exodus 32, 12. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. And do not bring disaster on your people. And God listened to Moses' prayer. He relented. He did not destroy all of Israel. He did punish those who were at the heart of it, but he did not destroy all of Israel. Much later, the prophet of Amos is given a message of God about what he's about to do to Israel. Amos 7, 1 through 3 says, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming a swarm of locusts when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about when it, it had finished eating the vegetation of the land. But I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. He's saying, I had this vision of locusts destroying every, every crop. In Israel. He says, we can't survive that. And verse 3 says, the Lord relented of this. It shall not be, said the Lord. And he will further announce a different judgment. Amos again pleads, and again God says, it shall not be. You see, God does something that is hard for us to get hold of. And folks, we just need to, it's hard for us to get hold of. 
God often does something to provoke within us a response. If you do not repent, judgment's coming. If you do turn to me, forgiveness. And this is what happened with Nineveh. What did God do out of this heart of compassion? He gave to them mercy. To the Ninevites, He gave them mercy. They knew, again, they knew their condition before God. And they knew they don't have any chance. We do not have a thing to offer God to make Him change His mind. Frank Page points out, though, that God's compassionate heart is always sensitive to those who cry out for mercy. This is the truth evidenced powerfully in verse 10. It talks about the mercy of God's heart, His incredible love. And then he says something very important. Here one finds irrefutable evidence that God wishes not for the destruction of the sinner, but for the redemption and reconciliation of His creation. Folks, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And every time I have ever seen a pastor, an evangelist stand at a pulpit and cry out that God is bringing judgment and damnation to this world with a smile on their face, my heart weeps. Because they don't understand their God. When Jesus sat at the the hill overlooking uh, Judah, Jerusalem, and knowing what was going to happen, knowing that they were sheep without a shepherd, and knowing that Jerusalem was going to be judged and destroyed by the Romans, we are told Jesus wept over Jerusalem. The later generations in Nineveh did return to their old ways, But let's not lose sight of God's mercy for these people. Why? Why should this narrative stir our hearts to hope and joy? Because this story, this entire book is about God's grace. He shows it first to a group of pagan seafarers who are about to die in a storm. He shows it to Jonah himself when he could have killed Jonah, but he rescues him and issues him a call a second time, giving another chance. And now he's offering to this particular generation of Nineveh grace. This story is the story of every true believer who has ever cried out to God in his or her sin and received grace and mercy by the Lord's hand. This is a story because every one of us in this room, every one of us, everyone listening uh, and watching online, every single one of us were condemned because of our sin. Every one of us deserved the judgment of God. And it is only through God's miraculous intervention in the person of Jesus Christ is there any hope. The story of Jonah and Nineveh 
when you look at the heart of what is being told, is our story. God's grace being given to those who do not deserve it. It's a shame that the revival did not continue in Nineveh and that the whole nation did not turn to God completely wholeheartedly. But folks, in our narrative, we see evil people in sackcloth and ashes before God. We see a king humble and desperately repenting and calling on the people to turn to God. And then we see God reaching out compassion to them. Giving them hope. Giving them life. So what's the point? What am I wanting you, begging you to see here? When I look at this story of a wicked people turning to God, I am reminded of a great man of God in Scripture who was confronted with his sin. It was a sin of adultery. It was a sin of murder. And in the 51st chapter of the book of Psalms, we have David's prayer of repentance. And he opens it up in Psalm 51, 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David, like the king of Nineveh, knew his only hope was in God. And the reason David turns and says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, have mercy on me, he knew that the Levitical code, the law of Moses, had no sacrifice for what was called the sin of the high hand. What does that mean? There is no sacrifice in all of the Levitical law that says when I have intentionally sinned, this is the sacrifice I bring. David knew the only thing he could do was throw himself on the mercy of God. And then he further explained, because David understood what God wanted from him at that moment in time. In Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. This is the key to understanding this story. This is the whole point of this text. And it tells us what we are called to do. God desires the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. See, friends, if and when we fail, God doesn't want our excuses. God doesn't want our reasons, our rationalizations. He really doesn't want our religious actions that are done to try to impress Him, to earn His favor. I really messed up this week, so I'm going to give an extra $100 to the church. Or even going to the Bible and reading all the stories. <laughs> reading the story of Samson. I know nobody would ever do this, but reading the story of Samson and just kind of 
prideful smirk say, at least I wasn't that bad. Putting on a cross around our neck or in our pocket or a Jesus t-shirt when we walk through the mall so we can say we're witnessing for God and He's bound to accept us then. He wants from us what He received from the Ninevites. Recognition of our sin, understanding, our need to turn from those things that have drawn us away from God. Crying out for His mercy and compassion as even David himself did. In short, folks, what God wants from us is confession. What God wants from us, in other words, very simply, heartfelt repentance. Heartfelt repentance. And that's what he's waiting for. Will he receive that from you today? God and I have already done some business over this message. I get convicted a full week before you guys ever get to hear it. If you have failed, if you have lost sight of the most important relationship in your life, that with God, if you have turned your back on what you know to be the truth of God, I'm asking, will you this very moment offer to God the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart? Will you come home to the Father without excuse, without rationalization, without bargaining? Will you come to the Father who is lovingly awaiting for you at the end of the road for you, his prodigal, to come home? Calling out your name.